everyone and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. And today we're going to start by talking about the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect basically says that a small change in history can have huge impacts in the future. And that cannot be more true than when we look at forgotten conflicts. So throughout history, there's been a lot of strife and battles and war between groups and nations. And a lot of those are often forgotten and ignored once they have happened because people deem them as not as important as the huge world wars or global conflicts. But if we look at minor wars, and we won't be able to get through all of them today because there are so many, but if we look at a lot of these forgotten conflicts, we can see that they are important because they are the small changes that really alter the future drastically in ways that we probably still can't tell yet. So let's start by talking about a war that came to be known as the Watermelon War and you'll understand why soon enough. So during the time of the gold rush, there was no easy way to get from the east coast to the gold fields in the west. Most of the central Great Plains were being held by Native American nations and there was no continuous transcontinental railroad track yet. So at that time, the fastest and cheapest mode of transportation was by boat. And the obvious solution was to sail from the American ports to the Isthmus of Panama at its narrowest point, cross overland by a mule train uh, or a riverboat or a wagon, and then board another ship and sail on to San Francisco or other West Coast cities. At that time, Panama was part of New Granada, which of course is now Colombia. But the Panamanians, many of whom wanted independence, had already attempted a lot of failed rebellions. So the U.S. and New Granada had a shared interest. New Granada wanted to keep control of their province, and the U.S. wanted a stable political situation which would allow them to keep traveling from one coast to the other. So the U.S. signed a treaty with New Granada where they pledged to defend Panama from any foreign interventions from Europe in exchange for uninterrupted right of transit across the isthmus. In 1848, construction was begun on a transoceanic Panama Railway that ran from Panama's Atlantic side to their Pacific side. It was a huge undertaking. It would eventually take six years and cost $3 million, which was a huge amount at the time and still is. And when the Panama Railroad was finished, it reduced the travel time needed to cross the isthmus from several days to just five hours. So Americans began arriving in droves on their way to get rich in California. For the Panamanians, however, the economic effects of the railway were disastrous. Not only were all of the local people who used to carry the travelers by mule wagon now out of business, but the shorter transit time meant that the Americans who were the primary source of money were now spending a lot less during this trip. In addition, the local people began to suspect that the United States may have designs on their country and many local people began to view the Americans as much of an enemy as the central government in New Granada. Essentially, anti-American sentiments were rife and tensions were high. So that sets us up for a seemingly innocent event that ended up sparking conflict. In April of 1856, a group of Americans, including a man named John Oliver, were waiting for a boat in Panama. Oliver decided to buy some watermelon. And what happened next is a bit unclear, but he apparently helped himself to a piece of the melon without paying the vendor who was selling it. 
The vendor then pulled a knife from his belt and threatened them, and in response, one of the Americans appears to have thrown a coin in the vendor's face. Then a crowd began to gather as Oliver pulled a pistol from his pocket, leading a Panamanian passerby to tackle him and try to take away the gun. It went off and wounded another Panamanian bystander. So what began as a minor theft became a full-scale riot. Americans in the area were beaten and robbed as they fled for the nearest safe place, which was the train station. Buildings were destroyed, a policeman was shot, and in the end, 17 people were killed and 29 were wounded. U.S. troops flooded into the city to keep order. The United States, worried that it might lose its ability to transit the Panama Isthmus, demanded that the government of New Grenada not only pay compensation for the deaths and the damages, but that it also transfer the railroad to American ownership and grant the U.S. the right to permanently station military forces in Panama to protect the railroad and keep it open. In reality, only 160 sailors ended up occupying the town, and during that time, not a single shot was fired. The U.S. also only got a little over $400,000 in response to this conflict. But the Watermelon War was impactful. It accelerated the idea of a canal in Panama, which would make it easier for American travelers and naval forces to cross from one ocean to the other. Within a few decades, the U.S. would arrange another rebellion by the Panamanians, which separated the province from Colombia and allowed the Americans to build the Panama Canal. The U.S. would own the canal and the zone around it for 100 years, and American intervention in Panama, propping up those who protected American interests and pulling down those who opposed them, was almost constant until the end of the Cold War. Finally, the canal was turned over to the Panamanians on December 31, 1999. Now we move on to another, interestingly enough, fruit-named war, the Banana Wars. And these were more a series of conflicts rather than one continuous war. The Banana Wars of the early 20th century were when the American military sent their troops south into Central America to keep their business interests there intact. Mistreated workers across Central America were getting fed up with working long hours in harsh conditions for less than a living wage. Some of them went on strike. Some threw together militias and waged full-on rebellions to fight for better conditions. And for the American government, all of this fighting was bad, especially for American business interests. Companies like the United Fruit Company had a vested interest in keeping their Central American plantation stable. And so they called the American Army in to crack down on those who were disrupting their system. The Roosevelt Corollary, a 1904 addition to the Monroe Doctrine, essentially allowed the U.S. to not only prevent Europe from interfering in Latin America relationships, but also to actively intervene in America's own interest in Central and South America. This was used as an excuse for various police interventions, marine occupations, and economic monopolies, all of which collectively helped form the Banana Wars. One such of these interventions was the Sugar Intervention of 1917. America began their third occupation of Cuba, and this was for the sole purpose of securing their sugar plantations amidst the military insurgency that was occurring after the re-election of a conservative Cuban president. Eventually, even though America had succeeded in securing the plantations, strikes began, and America soon had its marines patrolling city streets, constantly keeping the sugar plantation workers of Cuba under control. In the Dominican Republic, American troops were sent there starting in 1916, 
when a rebellion damaged an American-owned sugarcane plantation. They took over a small castle, killed the men inside, and set up a military presence to protect their business interests. American troops also moved into Haiti to quell the Cacao Rebellion of 1915. Part of that was to protect the interests of the Haitian American Sugar Company. The U.S. Army stayed behind even after the war was over, patrolling the streets and making sure that no one got out of line. And in Honduras, where the United Fruit Company and the Standard Fruit Company were worried about their banana sales, the American Army marched in on seven separate occasions throughout the early 20th century. Sometimes the army was called in to crush strikes, other times to stop revolutions, but every time it was to keep business booming. For example, in 1912, the U.S. sent down warships to the region surrounding Honduras in order to prevent war. In this case, not only did America have to defuse the conflict between natives and American companies, but they also had to take care of rising tensions between the fruit companies themselves. The Cuyamel Fruit Company was supported by the Honduran government and began to push plantation land into disputed territory with the Guatemalan-supported United Fruit Company. It was not until 1930 that the U.S. was able to completely mediate the situation. So, in response to all of these wars, the Good Neighbor Policy was formed. Yes, it called for less interventionism and more baseline respect for the sovereignty of our southern neighbors while still promising to protect them from foreign threats. This policy effectively ended the Banana Wars. More specifically, the Banana Wars officially ended when the final platoon stationed in Haiti returned home on August 1st, 1934. Hundreds of American soldiers and thousands of locals died in the Banana Wars. It represented how American business was able to drive the drastic actions of economic expansion into sovereign nations. It also represented the growth of American business interests across the world. Strikes and revolutions were crushed and put to an end, all while the profits of a handful of companies were maintained. This policy still colors our relationship with Latin America. Now we'd like to shift gears a little bit and go over to Asia to talk about the Korean War. Not the one that we're all familiar with, but the Korean War of 1871. So the Joseon dynasty rulers of Korea had witnessed the aftermath of the Opium Wars in China and had a strict policy of isolationism. However, following the conclusion of the Civil War, the U.S. took a renewed interest in East Asia. In 1866, a U.S. trade vessel, the SS General Sherman, heavily laden with trade goods, disappeared near Korea. The boat got stranded on a sandbank and the Koreans burnt it and killed everyone on board. When rumors reached the US, they sent a warship to find out what really happened. This warship arrived in 1867 and the expedition could not get an answer out of any local officials and they threatened to return with a bigger fleet. The next year, they returned with a bigger fleet and learned that there were no survivors. Upon hearing this news, the State Department of the U.S. decided to offer a treaty, but the Koreans turned it down, saying, We have been living 4,000 years without any treaty with you, and we can't see why we shouldn't continue to live as we do. In 1871, the Korean expedition approached Korea with the intent of opening Korea up to diplomacy and trade. The Korean government refused to bargain for the prisoners of war that had been captured, faced with the realization that nothing short of a full-on attack on the capital would result in a treaty, and with the Koreans sending in reinforcements, the Americans withdrew. The final toll of the battle was 243 Koreans dead versus 3 Americans dead. Korea would not sign a treaty with the US until 1882, only after the Japanese had forced Korea to open up six years earlier. 
It promised everlasting amity and friendship between the two peoples, which history would prove to be a bit optimistic. As we can tell by the fact that we know more than one Korean War. <laughs> Now the last minor and somewhat forgotten conflict we'd like to talk about today is the Posey War, also known as the Last Indigenous Uprising. It was considered the final military clash between the native peoples and the US government. In 1923, two boys from the Ute tribe stole sheep. They voluntarily turned themselves in and were convicted by a jury, but then they escaped. But that wasn't the real problem. There had been tensions between the Ute and Paiute Native Americans and the state of Utah for decades. The leader of the tribes, Posey, was particularly considered a threat. Now the newspapers used this last incident to try and get rid of the perceived problem of the Native Americans forever. Headlines screamed that the Paiute band declares war on whites and journalists were sure that the Utah governor had been asked to send a scout plane armed with machine guns and bombs to retaliate. In reality, when a posse came to the reservation looking for Posey, he and the other inhabitants ran for the mountains, only fighting in order to avoid being captured. But they could only hold out for so long, and many people were taken to a kind of makeshift prison camp. Posey, who was wounded in the leg, died from his wounds a month later, and everyone else was let go, since they were really after the famous troublemaker Posey, and that's whom the white locals were really worried about. And that was the end of the Posey War. And that was the end of direct violent conflicts between indigenous peoples in the USA and the government. However, if you look at our season two, episode one, Native Americans episode, you can see that there has been a lot of tension since then and there's still a lot of problems plaguing Native Americans. There may not have been any military wars or uh, battles, but there certainly has been ongoing oppression. But what I found really interesting about this specific conflict was that there really were two sides to the story because looking at different sources and places, there was a lot of writing about how white people in Utah were just protecting themselves from Posey and his band of savage natives. But then there was a lot, also a lot of more supported writing about how Posey and the Native Americans were really just trying to defend themselves from the Utah people who were encroaching upon the land that they had lived on for a long time. So it's really important to make sure you are listening to the losers and this is one of the best examples because there are so many different versions and retellings of history and we can't be sure that we know everything exactly how it happened but if you don't listen to both sides then you're really not going to ever have a good understanding of the history and of why we're here now. Yeah, the problem is that wars actually start because each side believes they are right. And so the rightness or the wrongness of the battle is actually only determined by the winners mostly. So we do get a very colored view of what actually happened and what the true story was at the time. But the lesson that we learn from a lot of minor, forgotten, quote-unquote, small wars are that they often follow a pattern. We should avoid having to learn the same lessons twice or thrice in dealing with particular peoples and regions and issues. So Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Ronald Reagan all had to deal with hostage crises and terrorism in North Africa. 
American forces have been involved in suppressing Muslim rebels in the Philippines off and on for over a century. We mentioned that the United States first intervened militarily in Haiti in 1915, not 1994. That's right. Minor wars do play a major role in shaping history. They spring up largely because of political tensions that are never addressed and they often not the tiny spark that leads to a much larger event. Yeah. So we talked about how minor wars are like the butterfly effect, right? Mm -hmm. They're somewhat forgotten and they're somewhat covered up and we don't usually hear about them, but then they have these huge, tremendous impacts. But they're also a symptom of issues and they often spring up because of the tensions that lead to the wars rather than being a factor themselves. Right. But of course, for this episode, we're only talking about conflicts that involved Americans. Uh, but there are certainly good examples across the world amongst different peoples. And within America itself too. Any episode about minor skirmishes that have major impact would be incomplete without talking about the shot heard around the world, which was the uh, opening shot of the battles of Lexington and Concord, which began the American Revolutionary War, leading to American independence. And the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that began World War One. So these are much more well known because they happened during those major conflicts and they were kind of the peak starting point of those. But we see that there's all of these conflicts, you know, 50 years before, 20 years before, 10 years before, and they happen at different times in history and they pop up largely because of the same issues, right? Land, nationalism, or cultural clashes, expansionism. So there's a lot of these similar issues that fuel a lot of these wars, but these wars, in a sense, are the losers that we're talking about this episode because they pop up so many different times and they're like the multiple faces of the hydra that are these conflicts. But we often ignore them and we ignore the reason why they happen and the reason why these tensions keep bubbling up. And because of that, we keep repeating ourselves, we keep repeating history, and we keep forgetting the losers. like to thank you all for listening to history written by the losers make sure you subscribe and leave a comment if you enjoyed follow us on instagram at history written by the losers and at twitter history losers we'd like to wish you all a happy holidays and happy new year we sure are ready for 2020 to end but we'll be back in 2021 with more history written by the losers, losers.